Right, in him was life, and that life was a, uh, was a light of all mankind. Um, apparently, if the sun was just to shut off now, just no more light, it would take 8 minutes 20 seconds before we noticed. Um, and then it would be pitch darkness. And uh, green plants would no longer be able to make food through photosynthesis, so the whole food web, the whole food chain would collapse. Temperatures would plummet. Uh, after one week, the warmest place on the planet would be minus 18 degrees Celsius. Um, unless you are on a thermal nuclear submarine, unlikely, then you'll be dead within three weeks. We need the sun. We need light. Light allows life. It was God's original gift to his creatures, which we read of in Genesis. And if the physical world is dependent on light, so is the spiritual world. If we want light and we want life, we need to centre our life around Jesus. Tim Keller writes, The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are in this holy dance of light and life. And light and life should be the qualities of those of us who claim to follow Jesus. In John 8.12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in Matthew 5.14, Jesus says, You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way as the moon reflects the sun's light, we should be reflecting Jesus' light and life. And we're doing this not for our glory. We're doing it for Jesus' and for God's. Throughout the New Testament, the followers of Jesus are called to be light in the darkness. So what's it mean? Three things. Here we go. First one. Hey, it's not... Have I turned it on? Naturally, this worked during the sanctuary service. Yay, there we go. The first one is being countercultural. You've only got to turn on the news to realise we live in a dark world. Full of lies and hate and confusion and war and all that sort of stuff. The Bible says in Romans, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here, so let's put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. We're commanded to live differently. Second of all, do you want to do it? I'll just go. Second of all, we're called to put ourselves out there. Jesus said, let your light shine before others. Whether you're timid or outgoing, you're called to be a light for the people you connect with. And that's only possible if we interact with others. It's only possible if we cultivate relationships. And then thirdly, it's always pointing back to the light source. When Jesus said, let your light shine before others, he goes on to explain why. He says, so that others may see your good works and give glory to God in heaven. Our goal shouldn't be about recognition about ourselves, but to bring glory to God. And there's a fine line between being a light and showing off to get attention. It's a matter of a heart. So my question today, for myself and you guys, is are we shining as we should? And if not, why not? We're really good as humans at, um, I don't know if you're talks, you listen to a talk and you think, I hope they're listening. I hope they're listening to this. 
Or is it just me? Maybe just me. Um, this is for us, okay? This is for us. Let's think about ourselves. Are we shining as we should? Sometimes I meet someone who's just got engaged, and oh, do you hear about the engagement ring, don't you? And you get these sort of poses, you know, different poses with the engagement ring on view, and you hear about the engagement ring, and I act interested, sorry. And um, you get this beautiful diamond ring, which you can see kind of gleaming and shining on the other side of the room. But over time, dust will accumulate on that ring. And in the same way, sin falling short of what God wants us to do can dull our shine. So we don't, oh, we're not lights for Jesus in the same way. Our lives, which once sparkled with the joy of Jesus, become clouded with a love for other things. How is your light shining? I want to argue today that one of the reasons why our light sometimes doesn't shine as it should is because we get despondent. And we get despondent because we've got a wrong idea about what it means to be a Christian. An idea that's profoundly unbiblical, and yet we continually perpetuate it. August the 6th, August the 9th, two atomic bombs were dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Um, A third of a million, half a million, mainly civilians, were killed. Um, And it resulted in regime change. It was seen as a necessary evil. I'm not saying I agree with that. That was what it was said at the time. It was the end of World War II in the Pacific. The Imperial Japanese Army very quickly gets stopped after that. And it sounds funny to us, all that, ra- all that radiation, etc. now. But at the time, people thought that was the end of it. And they got a terrible shock when between five and eight years later, there were terrible birth defects, etc., etc. It came as a huge shock. When we become a Christian, we're basically acknowledging we're not right with God. And we're saying Jesus is exactly who he says he is, and we invite him to become Lord of our lives. We may say some sort of prayer called the sinner's prayer. You will struggle to find that in the Bible. But we will, we will see it as there's a regime change. We've moved from darkness to light. We sometimes may kind of wave up our little golden ticket to heaven, and we're pumped up. We go, life is good. This is fantastic. And then just like Nagasaki and Hiroshima, we're surprised later down when we start seeing junk, when we start seeing rubbish stuff, when we start making the same mistakes, when it's things we find really difficult to deal with in our lives. And we're surprised by this. And we get despondent. Yes. (laughs) Including the dog. (laughs) We often start to doubt, though, I don't know if you've ever done this. You start thinking, I'm going, to say the, yeah, I'm going to say the sinner's prayer again. I'll say it with more feeling this time. Or, worse than that, we'll start to pretend that stuff isn't rare in our lives. We'll hide it away. We can put on a face, we can hide it away. Or maybe, I bet you've seen people who quietly slip away from the faith. And they do that because they don't want to be hypocrites. Or they do it because the Christian life, how they perceive it, is too difficult. The light stops shining. And it's because we've got the wrong model. I would argue that when we get someone to pray that prayer and then walk away, it's kind of like creating spiritual orphans. That model is wrong. Let me give you a different one. Just before that, there was this model... um, During the Second World War, the Americans were slowly taking Pacific Island by Pacific Island from the Imperial Japanese Army. And it was a long battle. It was a long battle. 
And it involved them slowly, first of all, getting a foothold in a certain place on the island. The rest of the island was still under the control of a Japanese army. But over time, the American army would slowly push on. It would fortify and it would slowly push away. And yeah, if you keep going, it would slowly take the island. When we become Christians, Jesus gets a foothold in our life. Rather than seeing a sinner's prayer in the Bible, what we see is people repenting and then following. Repenting, then following. Ready for a little link? People on the way. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we're being transformed from glory to glory. Jesus gets a foothold in our life. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit, areas of our life are revealed which aren't in keeping with who's in charge. And you see this best of all with new Christians. They're on fire for Jesus. They're allowing his Holy Spirit to work in their lives. The process is called sanctification. And as we journey with Jesus, his Spirit will show us the parts of our lives which we need to sort out. The new areas where Jesus gets a foothold. I'll just read a Corinthians quote first. It says, So all of us who've had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who's a spirit, makes us more and more like him as we're changed into his glorious image. So you see kind of changes in people's lives as they follow Jesus. But here's the important bit. This process continues throughout our lives. We're never going to fully get there this side of eternity. And remember, this isn't about glory for us. This is about glory for God. But be it materialism, or grumbling, or pride, or lying, or temper tantrums, bad-mouthing people, whatever, these areas are defeated, and our lives shine in that process for Jesus. Instead of getting despondent when a new area comes up, when the Holy Spirit prompts us about, is that right? Should you be doing that? We see it completely differently. This isn't about condemnation. This isn't about a general feeling that you're a failure. God says, you and I are his masterpieces. Rather, this is about being changed from glory to glory to glory. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will come up with um, kind of good things in our life which we've let become ultimate things. Good things which we put number one. In other words, Jesus has slipped off the agenda. Maybe some people centre their life around their spouse. Now, we are commanded in the Bible to love and respect and honour um, our spouse. But if we centre our life around our spouse, won't we become emotionally dependent, jealous, controlling? If you centre your life around your family, will you not try and live your life through your children until they resent you? You will disappoint them. They will disappoint you. You could centre your life around your work and your career. You will become a driven workaholic. I'm just going to say it, a boring person to boot. You could centre your life on money and possessions, and you'll become a materialistic warrior. You could centre your life on addictions, sorry, not addictions, I've I've killed the point. You could centre your life on money and possessions, become a materialist warrior, but you could do it on pleasure, and in that process, get addictions. 
You could center your life on relationships and approval, and you'll be stung by criticism. You'll fear confronting other people, and in the process become a pretty useless friend. You could even center your life on a noble cause. Make that your number one. But you will divide the world into good and bad and demonize half of it. You can even center your life on religion and morality. But you'll become proud and self-righteous. You will fail to live up to your own standards and in the process have this terrible guilt complex. We were made, we were designed to center our lives on Jesus. And in that process we shine for others. Sometimes we reach a stage where we think we've arrived. We think we have arrived. The island is done. We're there. God then just pulls back. He just shows us how big the island is. He just, he's been really gentle with us. And he just pulls back and, ah, oh, the island's a bit bigger than what I thought. I'm convinced, and especially if you talk to Christian, um, people who've been following Jesus for decades and decades, that the longer we follow Jesus the more we see how amazing God's grace is. Who's doing the work? Just skip on two, please. Who's doing the work? Paul says in Philippians 2, 12, 13, he teaches this paradox that God will do the work, but we must. We must do the work, but God will. Paul writes, work hard to show the results of your salvation. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the, power, and the power to do what pleases him. God will do the work, but we've got to allow it. There's some effort on our behalf here. It's really good to reflect on how we're doing in our Christian life. Okay? If you look at the Psalms, all the stuff David says, it is so good to reflect, but we tend to do it through comparison. Now, I used to be in school management, and I spent a horrible amount of my time looking at, like, looking at graphs like this. And I'll just explain. I'm really sorry if you're a teacher and you're glazing over. And I know they've changed it slightly since. But one of my jobs was that um, it was to look at attainment in children. So attainment means in year six, when they leave primary school, it means where the children were at a certain point. So they would do the SATs, uh, these tests in May, and then all the stuff would come to me. And I would start plotting it on graphs like a lunatic. Plotting down. And first of all, the government would have... Um, an age-related expectation, which means that is where the government expect the children to be in certain subjects at a certain point. And I would plot a pupil like pupil A. I liked pupil A. Because pupil A had exceeded expectations. I was so chuffed at pupil A. That was down to, by the way, school management. That was good. <laughs> but I wanted to look at pupil B. People B let themselves down and the school down. <laughs> they had failed in, in the expectations, and that was down to teaching, by the way. That was teaching let us down. And I would sit and compare them, and then start going, well, what's gone wrong there? Start checking things. Don't we do that in our life, in our Christian life? We compare ourselves to others, up and down. We silently list the stuff that other people do and say, well, we don't do that. Isn't that fantastic? I caught myself doing it recently. Someone said something, which was a bit dodgy, and I went, oh, I don't do that. Oh, pride. Off I'd gone with that. We've got a massive problem with that, okay? Because God's standard is perfection. You know, you think government standards are high for you in teaching. This is 100%. It is crazy if I'm down here 
and I'm starting to look at someone else who's here, and I'm starting to compare myself, just again, Robert, and I'm saying, oh, look at me. I've completely missed the point. It reminds me of X Factor. I don't watch X Factor very, I promise I really don't. But, when, (laughs) I have watched it. When, (laughs) when you see X Factor, sometimes someone goes on who is absolutely horrific. They're absolutely shocking. Um, and I think what they've done is they've compared themselves to family members who are even worse. Or their families are really mean. I don't know which. And they go, yeah, yeah, you're great. On you go. And on, on they go and they start singing, uh, thinking they're Beyonce reborn. And they sound like strangled sheep. And then Simon Cowell, who's one of the judges, who's fairly brutal, will explain to them the error of their ways. And he's quite brutal, and they look really dejected. And it's that, it's, it's funny, it's bad TV, but it's quite funny to watch. You think, oh my goodness. But isn't that what we do when we compare ourselves to other Christians and say, look at us? We have completely missed the point. We're nowhere near God's standard. You see, it's all about God's grace. That's what it's about. He takes us as we are, but he doesn't want us to stay as we are. He sees beautiful people with a terrible problem. If there's only one thing you remember this talk, remember that not a single sin is a match for his grace. Anyway, back to school management. If you just flick um, on a little bit, uh, yes, there, that'd be great. Achievement is a whole different kettle of fish. Achievement is progress. We tend to be hardwired towards attainment, but achievement is the interesting one. I used to always think you could split teachers into those who thought about attainment and those who thought about achievement. If you look at the graph, you can see the age-related expectations. Over time, year three, when they're seven or eight, through to year six, there's an expectation that children will be progressing at a certain point. And then I would look at pupil A and look at the story. A completely different story. We wouldn't even call that coasting. We'd call that regressing. This child who I'm really proud of on paper is actually going completely the wrong way. Something is badly amiss. And then I would look at pupil B. And pupil B, who started off at a much lower point for whatever reason, has had a fantastic year. Which pupil, as a a teacher who really got it, would be proud of pupil B? You'd be delighted with pupil B. Pupil A, who we were singing their praises of, were actually massively concerning You see, the important part isn't how big our island is. It isn't the stuff on it, because we start at different points. Jesus says in Luke, pretty much, much given, much expected. We can't compare ourselves with someone who has the advantages of us, in one way or another. We're not called to compare, but we are called that we should be moving from glory to glory. But really bluntly... If we look back on our Christian life and we're not seeing progress, we're not seeing ourselves becoming more Christ-like, something is wrong. And it's important to think long scale. Psychologists say we overestimate what can be done in a year, but underestimate ten years. You see, when we're progressing, when we're teamed up with Jesus, when we're on fire for him, we will shine like stars. People see the difference. In the same way as people be, for me, was like astonishing... There's certain people in the Bible who started at a low point, but my goodness, did they get it quickly. I think of a woman at the well. All sorts of dodgy stuff going on in her life, but she meets with Jesus. She leaves a bucket by the well, 
And she's running off to a village to evangelize, and the whole village is coming down to see Jesus. I think about Zacchaeus, a vile little man, an unpleasant thief, a collaborator, who meets with Jesus. And if you read the last verse of Matthew, uh, and when it talks about it, he ends up giving all his money away. He gets there. When we're not progressing, no matter how far down the journey we are, we stop reflecting Jesus as much. It's like we've hit the buffers. It's like the engagement ring that's become tarnished. Because a Christian life is about becoming more and more Christ-like throughout this journey until the day you and I die. So how are we reflecting Jesus? I think the biggest challenge we face is something I'm going to call signature sin. Now, I was really proud of coining that phrase. And then I went online, and there's hundreds of websites on it. So I was just... <laughs> I told you, I clearly didn't come with it first. But by signature sin, what I mean is sins that are unique to you, unique to me, which we really struggle with. And they're different for all of us. And at different points in our life, we will have those in our life. It might be something that we just keep coming back to. It might be something that we really struggle with. It might be something that feels a huge effort for us to deal with. If we're really honest, it might be something that gives us too much pleasure. We love it more than Jesus. But I believe we've all got them, and some of us have been struggling with this for years. Or maybe we've given up. We compartmentize it off. You see, you will not, and I will not, have the life God's planned for us if we're not progressing. You won't have the light and the life which people see to further God's kingdom. And again, not for our glory, for God's. But it's good sometimes to review and think it's time to say goodbye to one or two of those. And don't worry, once we deal with it, the Holy Spirit will reveal something else. That's the Christian journey. But we need to do a step at a time. You'll be delighted to know I don't know what your signature sin is. I know what mine are. But it might be as simple as Jesus is no longer number one in your life. You've let good things become ultimate things. Simone Wheel writes, All sins are attempts to fill voids. Sin isn't simply doing bad things. It's sometimes putting good things in the place of God. Jesus has to be number one if we're going to shine for him. Signature sins, there's three lies we believe. There's three lies we believe about signature sins. The first is we believe it's not a big deal. I can keep going with it. It's all right. Sin is a big deal. It's such a big deal that Jesus died on the cross. The writer of Hebrews says in 12.1, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's not a quick prayer and I finish my golden ticket. It's a marathon throughout life of us changing from glory to glory. The second lie, which we can believe, is that we can't stop. It's too tough. There's a great verse that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.13. It's a verse to put up somewhere. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. Put bluntly, whatever's popping in your head now, there's other people it's popping in theirs too. And Paul goes on to write, God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you're tempted, he'll show you a way out so that you can endure, so that you can carry on with the race. It's a great promise to hold on to. And the third lie we believe is, it's too big. This sin is too big. 
That's complete nonsense. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us boldly come to the throne of our gracious God. We have a gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and will find grace to help us when we need it most. When we need it most. There's a brilliant old school book you can pick up on eBay for 5p probably called In Pursuit of Holiness. It's really old school by a guy called Jerry Bridges. But it's a phenomenal book. And he finishes with this quote. It says, God has provided all we need for our pursuit of holiness. He's delivered us from a reign of sin and given us his indwelling Holy Spirit. He's revealed his holy will for holy living in the Bible. And he works in us to will and act according to his good purpose. He answers our prayers when we cry to him for strength against temptation. Truly, the choice is ours. Truly, the choice is ours. 